1989, Leslie Strachan, a health worker from Scotland, flew out to Africa to begin an exciting adventure working for the charity Tear Fund in Rwanda. She quickly settled in and became a key figure in her local community, building up a network of strong professional and personal relationships. The most significant of these proved life-changing. She met Charles Belinda, a church pastor. They fell in love and were soon married. But just over a year after the wedding, Rwanda was to undergo one of the darkest chapters in recent human history. In just a few months, starting in April 1994, hundreds of thousands of people were butchered in horrendous acts of genocide. The carnage was to leave the newly married Leslie Belinda bereft of her husband. It's 20 years since those events unfolded, events that have involved Leslie in a soul-searching journey which, in a very poignant sense, echo many of the major themes of Christ's passion, death and resurrection. I'm Mark Dowd, and in this Good Friday edition of Things Unseen, I'm joined by the woman at the centre of this extraordinary story. Leslie, when the genocide began in April 1994, you were actually out of the country in Kenya. You must have been absolutely beside yourself with anxiety. Yes, I had left the country just for a short holiday, for a two weeks holiday in Kenya at the end of March. And my sister had come out to join me from Scotland. I put on the radio and listened to the news unfolding hour by hour and couldn't believe what I was hearing. I tried phoning everybody I could think of and nobody was answering. And I had no way of knowing what was going on other than what I was getting through the media. It was just an awful, awful time. And of course, your husband was a pastor, so were you worried that he was quite a prominent public figure who would have been you know, well known about in, in Rwanda and therefore potentially a target? He was trained as a vicar in the Church of England and working actually as a teacher in the secondary school and within the church as well and very much known in the community. At the time, I didn't know who was being targeted or why these things were happening. So I didn't realise at the time just quite how much at risk he was. And I had no way of getting in touch with him to find out how he was either. So several weeks in, where were you at emotionally? Were you clinging on to hope that he might still be alive or had you assumed the worst? When I was in Nairobi, so still on holiday, my first thought was to try and get back into Rwanda again because that's where my husband was, that's where my home was, that's where my life was. But my organisation that I was working for, Tear Fund, made it very clear that it would be completely foolish and dangerous to go back into the country. It would have been impossible actually to go back into the country because I wouldn't have been able to get anywhere. There was no public transport. There were roadblocks everywhere. And I realised that if Charles, my husband, was trying to hide, then my searching him out as a white woman would draw attention to him. So there was no point in trying to get back. So I went back to Scotland and just waited for news, really. It was a total roller coaster of just not knowing what was going on. And it was really only towards August time that the rumours began to be more consistent as to where he'd been and when he was probably taken from that place and the fact that he hadn't been seen since. So that was the point where I thought, I have to go back out now. The genocide had finished. The country was just in tatters but it was possible now to go back out, so I needed to do that. And when you did do that, did you get any nearer to the truth? Well, I went back out and spent a month there, and one of the phone calls that I made was to my sister-in-law, 
who I had tried many times before to phone and not got any answer and assumed that they probably had all been killed. But this time I managed to speak to her, discovered that she and my brother-in-law and all their children had actually survived. At that stage, I guess I was still thinking, I know there's not been any word of Charles, but if I go out there, I might still find him. And I shared that with my sister-in-law and she said, Leslie, this is a small country. Everybody knows somebody who knows somebody. If he were around anywhere, even as a refugee somewhere, somebody would have seen him and the word would have got out. We have heard nothing. So you have to face the fact that he's been killed. And then, of course, 10 years on, you go back to the country on this journey of inquiry to try and get to the bottom of what happened. And you visited some perpetrators of these crimes in prison. What were you trying to do? Were you trying to get to the bottom of who had killed him? Yes. All I had known up till that point was that he had fled to a guest house, a church guest house in the southwest of the country, hoping to cross the border. And I had eyewitnesses to say that a vehicle had come asking specifically for him and he'd been put into it and bundled away. But I didn't know anything beyond that. Who took him? Where did they take him? What happened to him? One of the key witnesses, really, was a fellow pastor of Charles's, a vicar also in the Anglican Church, a priest in the Anglican Church, who had been in charge of the guest house at the time, who had himself seen him being taken away. He wasn't able or willing to tell me anything further than that. Other people that I've spoken to, many people said to me that this priest of the church had been seen collaborating with the militia, had been seen with a machete, had been negotiating who would be kept safe and who wouldn't. And many people were in no doubt that he was in coots and could have had a role to play in protecting Charles, but but hadn't done so. For me, actually, I don't know who to believe. There certainly seemed to be strong evidence to implicate him and clearly enough evidence that he's been put in prison. But yet he was denying it and said he'd done everything he could to protect him. Was your desire on this trip purely to find out factual information and solve a mystery, or was it to go further and to try and begin the process of some sort of forgiveness, to get some sort of closure on this particular situation that you find yourself in? There was perhaps a sense that this might bring some kind of, not closure, but significant step forward. But there was also the question of forgiveness, and that was something I'd wrestled with for 10 years, trying to understand what it meant And how do you forgive in a situation like that where you don't know who was responsible? I was hoping that should I meet the person that I would be able to have a conversation with them and might be able to forgive, as I understood forgiveness at the time. That didn't happen. I didn't meet anybody. And so I was still left with the uncertainty and the not knowing And on top of that, I had all the agonies of having all that been reawakened again. But that's a really hard situation for you to be in because you have this urge to forgive, but no names, faces, people to link the forgiveness to. Yeah. So where did that leave you? Well, it left me feeling very broken again. When I came back after that trip, I did find myself sinking, really. I found myself going back into that darkness that there had been in 1994 and it it's been quite a long process I mean that's 10 years ago but it's been quite a long process since then of continuing to unpack a load of these experiences 
And similarly with Charles, I presume, there's no obvious tangible grave to visit, no place to commemorate his death. That leaves you sort of dangling a little bit still. Yes. In 1995, there was a mass grave that was exhumed in the area where he'd been killed and that had been filled up around the 20th, 21st of April, which is the time he'd been taken. So I went out in October 1995 for this reburial ceremony, but it was dozens of vast coffins, each of which contained hundreds, if not thousands, of bones of remains. So there were thousands upon thousands of people reburied in that area at that time. And, you know, I don't even know if he was there amongst it, but that's the nearest I have to anything tangible. What I have is just assuming that the 21st of April was the day that he was taken, and that's the day that I mark as the remembrance of his death. As if things weren't bad enough, of course, when you go back 10 years on, you then, in this journey, uncover another very unpalatable fact, which is that you found that your husband had been unfaithful to you before your wedding and also during the marriage. How did it make you feel being confronted with that evidence of betrayal 10 years after his death? That was, in some ways, not entirely unexpected in the sense that I knew that he had a friendship with a colleague at his school and that had been going on for a long time. Nine months into our marriage, friends told me that um, he was unfaithful to me and that he'd been seeing her. I don't know the extent of the relationship and Charles always denied it. We went through various times of trying to be reconciled and to work through our differences. As it turned out in the end, although it had been a very, very difficult time and he was telling me that he didn't want to carry on in the marriage and that he'd filed for divorce and that was the end. That was how I left it when I left the country to go on holiday at the end of March. But I had contact with his sister within the first few days of arriving in Kenya before the genocide started and I said, can you go and see him? Well, when I met her again after the genocide was over, she said, I did go and see him and we did talk and he was the old Charles again that I used to know and she thought that there was a chance that he might have wanted to try again with the marriage. I still don't know. What I discovered when I went back to Rwanda then in 2004 was I ended up meeting up with the girl who had shared a house with the woman he'd had an affair with and she said to me, yes, clearly, you know, there was a relationship there and they were planning to go and live together. How did that make you feel? I mean, you go back trying to find the truth of what happened to him and then you're dealt this blow of finding about his infidelity. Were you, were you angry with him? Were you just confused? I think I was sad more than anything else. I had had my times of being very angry with him. There was a whole mass of emotions going on at the same time. There was the sense of betrayal. There was the sense of my own guilt at how I'd behaved in the marriage that wasn't helpful to it. There was the huge grief at his death as far as I knew but didn't know whether it was true or not. I felt enormously sad that what had been a lovely relationship because, you know, he was a good man, a lovely man and I just felt lots of things went very badly wrong and I wish it hadn't been that way. Have you been able to forgive him, do you think? I've thought long and hard about what forgiveness means. I think it's a word that we use very easily. I'm not 
criticizing you for asking me that question, but what does it mean? And in your situation, you're in a particularly powerful position to reflect on those things because you're being asked to forgive killers and then you're being asked to forgive a husband for infidelity. They're two very different types of forgiveness, aren't they? Yeah. I think when somebody is very badly wronged, usually our natural reaction and our response is to be angry and to want to hit back. And certainly during our marriage, that's where I got it very wrong because I wanted to hit back. I wanted to punish him in the way that he was hurting me. On reflection now, looking back at it, I'm thinking, well, he wronged me. Absolutely. You know, and I don't deny that. I didn't respond well. And I sometimes wasn't the wife that I should have been within our relationship. So there was fault on both sides. See, the danger of saying, do you forgive or do you not forgive, can be that you create a division between the innocent party and the guilty party. And you have the innocent party, which people assume to be me, sitting on my pedestal, sort of being patronising, pat on the head, there, there, you've been very bad, a naughty boy, but I'll forgive you, as if I've done nothing wrong. And actually, in reality, in life, none of us are squeaky clean and none of us are all wrong. So all of us have the capacity to get things wrong and to hurt others. But all of us also have the capacity for good. And once I realise that actually I get things wrong too, then it takes me away from that sort of patronising, superior attitude. And I think for me, it's about saying, you have hurt me, whether it's to Charles or whether it's to the ones who've killed him. You've hurt me, you've done something which is not acceptable. And there are consequences for that. But I want to try and understand where you are coming from. Why have you done what you've done? I want to try and walk in your shoes and see things from your perspective. What led Charles to behave in the way that he did? What led those who took part in the genocide to do what they did? What would I have done if I'd been in their shoes? How would I have behaved? I hope I would have had the courage to resist and to be one of those very few who actually stood up against the killers and who supported and protected those who were being wronged. But I don't know. If somebody had pushed a machete into my hand and said to me, if you don't kill with us, then we will kill your husband. We will kill your mother. We will kill your child. What would I have done? And so I don't want to sit here and claim that others are completely wrong and I am completely right. That's not true. I think you said in some of your writings that forgiveness is so hard that even Jesus on the cross cannot directly say to those people, I forgive you. But he says to the Father, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It's as though he deflects it to the third party, as it were, because it's just so hard to look at other people and and say those words. Yeah. I think what has struck me in reflecting on the path that Jesus travelled up to his death and the betrayal and the torture and the miscarriage of justice and the violence against him, never once did he turn round in the midst of that and say, I forgive you. So I don't think we're called in the midst of that to say, I forgive you. What Jesus did was, on the cross, looking at those who had wronged him, He said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. He somehow had managed to get into the shoes of those who'd wronged him and realised that they were acting in ignorance 
and blindness. But he didn't take the step to forgive them himself. He asked his father to forgive them. It's 20 years since the genocide now. How would you say the experience of losing Charles, so many friends that you had in Rwanda, and dealing with that betrayal of his, how's that shaped your own journey of faith? It's had a huge impact on my journey of faith. I look back to 1994 and how I was when this all happened. I had a very strong faith and a very clear faith, I think, for me. Life was quite clear. It was right and wrong and black and white and good and evil. And so through the genocide, I prayed for Charles and trusted that God would look after him and keep him safe. And so the first real challenge to me was, why did God not look after him? And also, why did this whole thing happen? Where was God in the midst of it all? I find it very difficult because I was in a church context at the time over a number of years where it was actually quite difficult to voice these difficult questions and to express any kind of doubt or uncertainty or confusion about God. And I would go to church often on a Sunday and actually come out feeling worse than I did when I went in. And I got to the stage where I thought, I can't do this anymore. It's not helping me. So I left church and many of my friends really didn't understand what I was doing. And I had one friend even who told me that I was being disobedient to God because the Bible says that you shouldn't give up meeting together. So I was sinning and I needed to get back to church. But I had a sense that God was bigger than that and that God understood where I was coming from and that he could cope with it. And how long did that period of absenting yourself from church last for? Well, altogether, I mean, I left in 2002 and I didn't go back till 2007. So it was five years. And when you look back on all this now, do you detect a divine hand, a sense of purpose? Because it seems to me that your notion of God is so much more big and subtle and you're happy with doubt and you really engage with those people who have those $64 million questions about, you know, how could he let these things happen? Whereas 20 years ago, you would have said, go and look it up in Scripture. There's an answer there for you. Yeah, I think my view of God has changed a lot. I think I was held by God right throughout the whole of that, whether I was conscious of God close to me or not. You know, I look back and think I was held by God. And in the moments of loneliness, did you feel his presence always? Or did you even feel like Jesus on the cross sometimes? You know, why have you forsaken me? There were times when I came close to thinking, does God even exist? And shall I just throw the towel in with the whole lot? What's the point? And yet I thought, well, even if I can't see the consistency and it doesn't make sense to me now, there's still something within me that was saying, hang on. There is a bigger picture here. I might not understand it yet, but there is a bigger picture. And I think the point where I've come to now is not that I understand God better. In fact, I probably understand God even less because I think God is much bigger than I ever, ever could have imagined. And there's much more of a mystery to who God is and how God works. But that's okay. And it's okay to not understand it all. And it's okay not to have all the answers and to be able to say, I don't know. And I, I find often with 
people that I have conversations with, which are which are many, because I think when people see that I've been through these kind of experiences, then it gives them the freedom to be able to open up with their own struggles and questions and doubts. And what I often find is that all I can do is be alongside somebody and say, I don't understand either. And I can't give you the answers, but I can journey with you and say, you know, you're not alone in this. It's the people who did that to me that have enabled me to get through. And I think I I met God through other people. We're having this conversation at a period when we have themes in Holy Week of, of betrayal of Jesus, of physical suffering and the hope of new life. Every year that comes round, after everything you've been through, you must find this particular time of the year just an amazing opportunity that speaks to you in a very real and living kind of way. I think Easter has taken on a meaning to me that it never had before. That's partly because the particular church tradition that I find myself in now does Easter in a big way and a very profound way. The period of the 40 days of Lent is a period of self-denial, of fasting. There is a degree of suffering in there. It's a small degree, but there is a degree of suffering. The profound week leading up to Jesus' death is a time of reliving, reenacting what Jesus went through. The Last Supper, the foot washing that we physically wash feet, the long periods on Good Friday of waiting, of silence, of emptiness, the sense of loss on Saturday when there is nothing, the sense of death, that it's all ended. And all of that real heaviness and emptiness needs to be gone through in order to experience the joy of Easter morning. Why does that make you get so emotional? Are there tears of joy? I think it's the holding together of the pain and the joy at the same time. You can't experience the joy, the fullness of the joy, unless you've experienced the pain. And I think, for me, that is the reality of life, that pain and joy are the two sides of the same coin. Maybe I see things a bit more heavily than other people do. Maybe I find it more difficult to really let go and throw daffodils in the air or whatever it is. Leslie, if there's anybody I've met who's in a position to talk about holding those things together, it's you. And what you're saying in a way is people who've had a very easy life without being put on the rack of pain and suffering and loss can't really in full maturity understand what Easter's all about. Mm. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you can understand it. You know, I've I've celebrated Easter throughout my life. In early years, we'd had a Good Friday service, probably. And then we'd have had an Easter Sunday egg rolling on the beach or something. And I didn't understand. I just hadn't relived it. I think what it does for me is that it makes me realise how much Jesus went through for me, for us, what he suffered. That's just enormous and it's very humbling. You're a deacon now in the Church of England. Has your formative experience of what you've been through in Rwanda, the genocide, Charles, has that actively stimulated your sense of vocation in the church? I don't think I'd be where I am now if it hadn't been for what I've gone through. The whole experience of 
going through the genocide and then the 20 years since and coming now to a point of saying, actually, there is nothing that can separate us from God's love. And I want to share that with others. That's why I've come into the church. I suppose there'd be a temptation that your life could have got stuck on a Good Friday part of the disc. But it sounds to me as though you've emerged through that tomb. And I'm not suggesting that your life is total Easter resurrection all the time. But you have enough glimpses of that and feel of that to know that you're holding that death and life tension in your own personal life in a very real way now. It's in the expressing of it and in the searching and the struggling and the wrestling that I think I've been able to, with God's grace, to come through and find a considerable degree of freedom and joy in life that has helped me to move on and not stay stuck. So there's a part of me which will always hold that pain and it's always going to be there. But there's also a sense in which life has moved on and there is a freedom and a joy in being alive and all the little things in life that I would hope never to take for granted that I just am so grateful for life and for all that it gives me. That seems a very good note on which to bring this conversation to an end. Thank you, Leslie. I'm Mark Dowd. You've been listening to Things Unseen, the programme for people who think there's more to life than the material world. Things Unseen is a CTVC production. And you can hear this programme again and find other editions of Things Unseen at www.thingsunseen.co.uk.